your companion seems to be making you that way too. Enough to tolerate people like him. And once you start tolerating them, you're going to end up being like them yourself as you all embrace the void. I hate purity. I hate goodness. I don't want virtue to exist anywhere. I want everyone corrupt. Leaves from the vine Falling so slow Sometimes, Master, it is difficult for meatbags to step back and gain some perspective on death and its importance in their insignificant lives. I don't know if I'm up for this. I'm so emotional, I can barely think straight. Great. Use that. Embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 185 of Embrace the Void, where everyone is someone's unwelcome company. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are taking some culturally relevant social epistemology, so let's make some regrettable friends. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... Something. My guest this week is Joshua Blanchard, visiting assistant professor of philosophy at Oakland University in Rochester Hills, Michigan. Joshua, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. Thanks for coming out. I really appreciate it. You um, you put a paper in front of me a little while ago that was too tempting to pass up. So I appreciate you coming in to do a little bit of a deep dive on it. Thanks. Yeah, I'm excited to do it. Yeah, so this is a paper that you wrote uh, about the problem of unwelcome epistemic company, uh, which I think has interesting sort of bearings on various kinds of online discourse. Before we dive into that, do you want to give folks a little bit of a sense of like your background, where you're coming from philosophically and whatnot? Sure. So I specialize in sort of three areas, philosophy of religion with emphasis on Jewish philosophy and Metaethics, and I'm interested in questions about moral realism and the like, and then also social epistemology. Uh, and so this paper obviously falls in that third category primarily. Um, and um, yeah, so I'm I'm interested in sort of the intersection between uh, epistemology and I mean it's social epistemology, but in particular. Uh, ways in which our sort of relations with each other affect uh, what we believe or what we think about what we believe and what we might worry about, about what we believe. Mm -hmm. What got you interested in particular in that kind of religious social epistemology stuff? Um, my three interests don't really have like a unified explanation. Um, <laughs> I have mm -hmm. sort of ad hoc explanations <laughs> for each one. So like philosophy of religion in many ways is my sort of entry point to philosophy. Um, mm -hmm. And then meta ethics, I sort of became interested in at the end of undergrad. 
Um, and then social epistemology, you know, I never, I didn't like think of myself as an epistemologist really um, throughout grad school. But then really this paper actually was sort of the beginning of me thinking, oh, maybe I can contribute something in this area. And it really came hmm. from not, it's a little embarrassing to say, but not really reading philosophy, although I, you know, I'm interested in like the problem of peer disagreement and the like, but it came from actually encountering the, mm-hmm. the problem, seeing, seeing people accuse other people of saying something that, you know, the classic example is something that Hitler would say or that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. seeing this in a number of mm-hmm. different guises and then thinking, oh, you know, nobody's ever really, to my knowledge, written on the problem of agreeing with somebody. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah mm-hmm. that's really interesting and it's it's cool to me that you bring up that you were also interested in meta ethics because as i was reading through the paper one of the questions that i jotted down that i wanted to get into a little bit with you was what you see as the relationship between epistemology mm-hmm. and meta ethics i often joke about how sort of epistemology is just ethics for beliefs or something like that and there is of course ethics of beliefs kinds of arguments um but i'm curious i'm actually also curious what your meta ethics is and how that informs upon your epistemology yeah so uh i am a moral realist of some kind Mm -hmm. i'm i'm the kind of moral realism that I hope is true is of the what's sometimes called the robust kind or the or the non-naturalist kind. Uh, awesome. My, my I like dis- it. My dissertation project was called Angsty Metaethics, and mm. I'm interested in the sort of angst that not all, but some of us feel about the prospect mm-hmm. of realism being false. <laughs> um, and so I lean that in that in that direction when it comes to the relationship between epistemology and morality or epistemic and ethical norms i i tend to be a fairly boring traditional person when it comes to philosophical taxonomy so i really like Mm -hmm. my distinctions you know i like i like like in ethics i really like the distinction between you know normative ethics and meta ethics even though there are Mm -hmm. philosophers who Mm -hmm. have argued that one reduces to the other or they collapse into Mm -hmm. each other or whatever and likewise, I really like distinctions between norms, you know, epistemic norms, moral norms, prudential norms. Mm-hmm. And so often philosophers will come up with clever arguments for um, or examples that motivate collapsing some traditional conceptual distinction like that. But I'm rarely convinced that mm-hmm. that the distinction is less useful or plausible in itself than the clever <laughs> than the clever argument. Mm-hmm. So so like when it comes to stuff like we might talk about this soon like pragmatic encroachment mm-hmm. and that sort of thing like the idea that um that your knowledge can be affected by or sorry the the semantics of you know s knows that p can be affected by um the practical environment that sort of thing you know i'm very inclined to mm-hmm. try to find ways of explaining these things keeping sort of separate um the mm-hmm. the sort of domains of norms um so interesting I've gone back and forth in my philosophical life between um, clumping and separating. Uh-huh. Like there was, there were parts of my life where I very much leaned towards like these things are similar and they're the same, and then other times I'm like they're different, and then I'm like they're the same but different. Um, yeah. So it's just funny for me. I think I think we all wrestle with those kinds of uh, questions all the time. Right. I mean, th- this sounds kind of corny, but it's like these distinctions just feel so good in the brain, you know. Um, and <laughs> no one, no one is going to be happy with that as a justification for your beliefs. <laughs> yeah, right. 
Right. Um, yeah. Hume's like, mm, no, that was good. You had a good, uh, good argument there. Uh, if your sentiments are well balanced, then <laughs> that's like, right. fine. Like, that's right. Just, just stick with them. It, well, it's also funny to me because my master's thesis was defending robust moral realism against evolutionary debunking arguments mm. which sort of i'm now very curious to read your anxiety defense because i think um i know a lot of people in the skeptical and atheist communities who would benefit i think from sort of further analysis into their own anxieties about moral realism without god in particular oh yeah yeah mm -hmm. and since you are have that religious background i imagine i don't know if there's any of that in there but um i think you know the, the way that the uh, immoral atheist stereotype has evolved into a kind of meta-ethical immoral atheist stereotype um, is, I think, quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, people like William Lane Craig and you know, and mm -hmm. people like that will have have sort of famously or notoriously given arguments like this. <laughs> How infamously? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I will say though that I don't think there's necessarily an argument from angst about realism to the truth of realism. Um, no. though when we have reason to hope that something is true, we might have some reason to count on it being true or to, you know, act as if it's true or, or use it in how we think about the world or something like that. Um, and so one thing I'm interested in is whether or not that could be the case with something like a meta-ethical view. I mean, there's sort of straightforward reasons for thinking that there's at least, um, a chance of that being the case with God. Uh, Pascal's wager type hmm. type reasoning that there could be like prudential reasons for betting on God or something like that. Or if you find that your life feels um, meaningless, you know, when you're not in a religious mode or something like that, um, that can mm -hmm. provide some kind of reason to, you know, act as if God exists or something, you know, of that sort. And so it's sort of along those lines that I've, I've wondered about um, realism. You know, you have philosophers <laughs> like Derek Parfit. As a kind of noble lie. <laughs> Yeah, um, just but and that would be the kind of argument you might be able to give that is at least an argument maybe for endorsing it in some way. Um, but mostly uh, my paper on this um, moral realism and philosophical angst is more devoted toward trying to understand just the claim like what does it mean to say like it would be better if realism were true? Uh, mm -hmm. that's a, it's a hard kind of claim to make sense of. Hmm. And so, um, that's, we can sort of keep those claims separate, like that it, it would be good if realism were sure. true, or it would be better if realism were true. And, you know, we have reason to think realism really is true. Um, after all, it could be sad, mm -hmm. uh, sadly false, <laughs> um, you know, but, but it's interesting. Yeah, how, I believe how philosophers strongly, yeah. disagree about this Philo you know, some, people are completely unmoved by the prospect that theism is false or realism is false or we don't have free will. You know, there's a sort of traditional cluster of, of, mm -hmm. of issues mm -hmm. and there's not the same kind of angst mm -hmm. about like, um, you know, Oh, I don't know, Platonism or nominalism about numbers or something like that. Um, at least not as commonly. And so there's like some debates that, that yeah. cause this kind of angst and some debates that don't. And I, I find that interesting in itself. This is now an episode so do, about I, I imagine that there are sec <laughs> I imagine there are sections of the world though where people do get really angsty about their um, platonic realism about numbers uh, certain <laughs> yeah. parts of Twitter for example um, but I also I, you know I believe very strongly like I'm, I'm very sort of 
nervous about like the the will to believe motivated reasoning kind mm-hmm. of stuff and so i think you know we want to argue that that non-natural moral realism is true not because we want it to be true but because it is true and we're lucky that it happens to be true i guess or maybe not but at least either yeah. way it is true it seems to me um so yeah i think that's really that's that's great stuff so let's let's bridge from there i guess into your paper a little bit um because i do think this ties some of these themes together so like i said the paper is about uh the pro the what's the original title is the problem of unwelcome epistemic company um and it's a issue around sort of unwelcome epistemic agreement as you said do you want to lay out sort of the central concern here yeah so the the central concern can be stated pretty concisely it's just sometimes we find ourselves in agreement and i mean agreement of belief you know having beliefs with the same content if you like with sources people institutions ideologies um you can kind of expand it but primarily i'm thinking about people and groups of people that we find unseemly. Um, so uh, what motivated the paper originally was um, uh, instances like, I have a couple quotes at the top of the paper. One is from Noam Chomsky, where um, mm-hmm. he was giving a talk. This was like in 1980 something. And he had said some negative things about the Soviet Union, you know, despite primarily criticizing the United States. And there was uh, um, mm-hmm. someone very fond of the Soviet Union in the audience who said, in the Q and a that you're just repeating what the mainstream media, you know, or you're, you're, you're saying what the mainstream media says about the Soviet union or something. And Chomsky just dismissed it and said like, well, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, it doesn't matter if I say something, if I say something true, it doesn't matter that someone else happened to agree with it. And then there's another instance, much more recent where in the 2016 campaign, Donald Trump had uh, tweeted out, I think a quote that turned out to be from Mussolini. Uh, it was like, it's better to live as like, Mm-hmm. One day is a lion, mm-hmm. then a hundred is a sheep, or something like that. It, it's like attributed to Mussolini. I don't think it's really a Mussolini quote. And he right. defended himself by saying, "Just like it's a good quote, who cares if it was if it's Mussolini?" And so, I think my view is that we should at least be somewhat bothered when we are encounter um, beliefs that we have, uh, or rather, when we believe something and we encounter agreement from unseemly sources mm-hmm. there are many situations in which we should be at least bothered move to second guess a little bit you know move to double check it doesn't mean i'm saying like if you find yourself in agreement with somebody you don't like you should abandon mm-hmm. your belief that would be rather absurd uh but that it's you know it, it poses a kind of challenge and it's not illegitimate for someone to say you know i don't know about this thing you said, this thing you said is what, you know, all the white nationalists are saying or something like that, that that's a legitimate concern. So that's, that's kind of the overall problem. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think, so it seems to me that you're taking what I would consider a controversial position on this issue, given that the conventional wisdom would be, and I'll put this in the form of a question that, you know, I think everyone was wanting to ask in their head, which is how is this not just epistemic guilt by association? And how is that not a bad thing? Yeah. So it's um, the the epistemic association with an unseemly source doesn't, as it were, make you guilty, so to speak. Rather, the idea mm-hmm. is that it's a sign that one or more things, and I have four types of problems in the paper, one or more things might be wrong with either your belief or how you got to the belief um, mm-hmm. or something involved, which includes some stuff about your character. 
Um, and so that's Which could get a little bit normative <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, right. uh, so that's, that's the idea. It's not that, um, I mean, it's, it's true that it would be like a kind of informal fallacy, uh, or mm-hmm. just a fallacy to say that like, you know, I don't know, Hitler says the sky is blue. So therefore the sky is not blue or something like that, 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 um, or your belief is shared by Hitler. Therefore, you know, I'm rejecting your belief. Um, that I'm not saying that that's a good argument. Um, I'm mm-hmm. saying that, that unseemly agreement is, um, sometimes some evidence that there's something wrong. Uh, and red flag. And at the end of the day, and we'll probably get into this, um, there could be something wrong and, and, and your belief is still true. It could be that, that, you know, mm-hmm. um, the un the unwelcome epistemic company alerted you to something and you realize that you were, um, influenced by, you know, some set of biases or whatever, but it happened to, to be the case that, that, that you got it right this time, but, but you're, you know, it's good that you were alerted to these biases or something of that kind. So kind of a social, uh, a social justice gettier problem where you have <laughs> yeah, uh, a true right. belief that is not properly justified. So yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that some, um, but first I, I want to, Highlight, and this this kind of ties back to what you were just saying a second ago about the idea that we want to keep it's some it's valuable to keep sort of epistemic judgments and moral judgments separate. You know, we could be just saying here this is just a red flag epistemically, right? Mm-hmm. All we're saying is you need to maybe double check your your math, right? Because you have gotten this corroborating information. That doesn't necessarily mean that like we're saying you're like Hitler or something like that. Though in your paper, you will talk about that a little bit, it seems like, right? Right, right. So I, you know, I divide the four problems into two epistemic problems and two moral problems mm-hmm. um i think yeah they want to lay those four out yeah for us sure so work through them a so, little bit so mm-hmm. i call them falsity malfunction vice and implication so falsity is the problem of th- of your belief maybe being false so the idea is like mm-hmm. the kind of cartoonish example i give which is cartoonish uh is like mm-hmm. there's a, you know imagine a very bizarre calculator that you know gets uh, problems wrong, you know, 80% of the time or something. And mm-hmm. you do like a semi complicated calculation in your head. And then it turns out the calculator agrees with you, you know, or mm-hmm. it's like, you know, maybe it's programmed to make common errors that people make, uh, or what have you. So that'd be like an example where there's nothing moral going on. You know, you just might worry that, um, your belief is false on that basis Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. or not believe that it's false on that basis worry that it's false on that basis Mm -hmm. uh and so then the second one is malfunction where the idea is um you have some reason to worry that you're irrational in some way um so Mm -hmm. not necessarily that you made some kind of permissible mistake but maybe maybe the fact that you know, the Alex Joneses of the world are seem to be the main ones that share your belief means that you are given to a certain kind of, um, you know, quote unquote, quote unquote, conspiratorial thinking or something like that. Though mm-hmm. I, whenever I say An that unreliable I, belief formation, yeah, mechanism, right, perhaps. right. Though whenever I say that, I want to specify, you know, clarify that conspiratorial is almost like a propaganda term. Uh, there are real conspiracies, so it's, <laughs> uh, but, but there are, and there are also conspiracy theorists, and it's, it's a hard right. job of distinguishing between is, them. Exactly, you're right. 
So um, then, yeah, we just we just did episodes on that, so that's funny. So then, vice is the worry that you have some kind of moral failing that is related in some way to your belief. So, if it mm-hmm. turns out that your belief about, uh, I think my example in the paper is refugees and crime rates. If your belief about refugees and crime rates tends to gel with people who you think are, you know, white nationalists or something, um, mm-hmm. then you might worry, well, maybe I'm, you know, guilty of some kind of bias against refugees or some kind of xenophobia um, that's leading me to like over uh, uh, emphasize mm-hmm. cer- certain kind of evidence or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And then finally, implication is the idea that you your unwelcome epistemic company might alert you to the fact that there is an unseemly implication to your belief that you haven't um, thought about carefully enough, mm-hmm. uh, where if mm-hmm. you became aware of it, you would either reject the belief because the implication was so implausible or bad or whatever, um, or mm-hmm. at the very least, um, recast the belief or... Um, uh, or it, rather, it it would at least give you chan- um, reason to double check and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So those are the right, four so it, kinds of problems. Yeah, and and none of those I think, though I think some of them could sound like guilt by association. I think you're right that they are distinct from the kind of strict pattern of you have a same belief as this person, therefore you are equally as bad as this person because it's more yeah. of a like you might need to check are you biased in some ways that you are not aware of so let, let's work through these in a little bit of detail so we'll start with the falsity one which I, let, me, let me make sure i reiterate it and make sure that i understand correctly so this is simply you know uh because a far-right christian nationalist agrees with me about immigration it might be the case that my beliefs about immigration are false is that sort of the idea that's the general idea yeah Okay. So how, I'm curious, how often would you, in your estimation, and I know you don't haven't done studies on this, (laughs) but like, do you have a sense that some of these problems are worse or more prevalent than the others? And and do you feel like falsity is one that has like a high or a low degree of prevalency out there in the world? Uh, So I think, um, so some of the ways I've thought about this have certainly developed since I like had the paper accepted mm-hmm. um, or since I was working on R and R's the, so I do think that falsity just by itself is pretty rare. You're pretty rarely mm-hmm. in a, in a situation where you've like estimated that somebody or some source literally gets things wrong more often than not. And so mm-hmm. therefore their agreement is, is evidence that your belief is false. Um, I think mm-hmm. more, I think more commonly we're in um, situations like malfunction or vice, which are themselves related in a certain way, um, which uh, in turn might make us worry that we're getting things wrong or that we tend to get things wrong. Um, but the type of situation where we encounter uh, dis- uh, agreement, excuse me, where uh, by itself without any mm-hmm. of the other problems surfacing, we're you know, we're simply able to make this kind of probabilistic judgment that our belief has received a kind of indirect counter evidence from the agreement. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think that's like relatively rare. Um, Mm -hmm. Now there are certain kinds of cases. So one kind of case I was thinking about recently, and this connects to some things you might want to talk about with respect to the internet is uh, there are um, 
so I don't know how to quantify this, but there's a certain kind of story when it goes viral mm-hmm. that's like it kind of seems like mm-hmm. um, almost always like the details are wrong and what people think at first. I'm not trying to hint at any particular kind of story. Mm-hmm. There's just like, like um, you know, like um, uh, that Project Veritas group, for example, um, who put out like it's a right wing sure. group that sure. puts out these like edited videos of Planned Parenthood and stuff. <clears throat> and the videos are like real. They're not like Andy you know, Ngo would be another one. I think you could. Put yeah, forward. he's a good example. It's not like the videos are deep fakes or anything like that. Um, but they create a certain kind of impression, and um, you know, if you just go with it, you often find you know a month later or something. It turns out you know there was all kinds of context and so on. Um, so that's a kind of case where if you're sort of uh, lazily you know, believing the scroll on <laughs> on social media or something like that, mm-hmm. you might find mm-hmm. yourself mm-hmm. thinking, oh, here's what happened, you know, like Planned Parenthood. I don't know what that controversy was. It was like something really crude about like a really crude, like baby part selling industry or something um, like a way they that they sure. pre- that yeah, they presented that. it. And I might realize, oh, that's that's like what Project Veritas was pushing. So now I think, well, maybe, mm-hmm. oh, I'm, there's probably something wrong about that belief. Maybe it's not completely wrong. I don't know, right? But but I know them to be, like, more often than not, in my experience, like, misleading or, or that they misrepresent things. And so if I discover that, you know, mm-hmm. I share their perspective on something, that might be a kind of case where falsity arises. Um, now, that's a messy case in a variety of ways, but mm-hmm. but just just a kind of case i was thinking about yeah and it does seem like it yeah as you get into the real world cases it feels like it gets a little harder to distinguish between falsity and malfunction and it's sort Mm. of like malfunction is you recognizing that you have a unreliable belief forming mechanism that is like the mechanism in that other group whereas falsity it seems to me is more like you recognize that that source has is an unreliable belief forming source or something like that and so you increase you know like if i google uh, a claim about adrenochrome and like the first 10 sources are all like websites that you've never heard of right that seems to me like it could be uh, like a sort of straight falsity kind of situation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. was that is that sort of using the the, criti- the criteria correctly yeah i think so that sounds mm-hmm. like what i have in mind so Okay, so talk about malfunction some then. This seems like a bit of a more... Because I I did get the sense in reading, like, you don't say this explicitly, but I got the sense that, like, falsity is a little bit more... Because it's a little two-dimensional compared to how human belief formation actually works. It seemed like malfunction was the more robust of the epistemic side of the problems. Um, Do you want to... Do you agree with that? And, like, what do you see as the main differences there? Yeah, I think I mean I think falsity is almost like the not quite the toy case, but it's like the kind mm-hmm. of baseline simplest version of the problem that may mm-hmm. not be found too much in the wild by itself. Um I think malfunction is a much better or much uh, not not better, uh, a much more common problem to face. Um and this has to do with not wanting to um hold things for bad reasons, hold things irrationally, and also not wanting to have epistemic practices that are, um, you know, not, not, um, 
well attuned to the uh, truth. <laughs> um, so mm-hmm. there's still a downstream concern about um, falsity. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, there are certain kinds of cases like, uh, so this might be relevant actually to people who are, you know, career skeptics. So uh, you can imagine the following kind of person who is skeptical of, um, you know, a wide range of things and is constantly very closely reading like research and so on to find like the smallest, like statistical errors and so on and so forth Mm -hmm. and might actually be very good at it um and might even Mm -hmm. come to a lot of true beliefs with that method like they really do are you know they -hmm. really are able to poke lots of holes in people's research and so on um but it might be given the way the social epistemic world is that this type of practice um is not a good way to carry on your epistemic life. So it might be that um, mm-hmm. if you're not quite as skeptical in that way, like methodologically skeptical almost, um, mm-hmm. you're going to be more inclined to believe consensus and that sort of thing. But you're also, though, you're going to miss the cases where like the consensus is wrong, <laughs> you know? Um, and so. Yeah. The, Cause like the way you. Yeah. Go ahead. Yep. Okay. Well, no, I just want to say, I mean, the way you're describing that is sort of indicative of conspiracy thinking kind of behavior where you do check the experts for yourself and like read the research yourself. And as you're sort of saying, if you happen to be, I mean, and like no one could be this given the complexity of knowledge in the world now, but like if in theory you were the sort of person who could poke holes in everybody's research in this way and it was really effective, then maybe that would be a reliable system for you. But for most people, they will misinterpret the information. They will think they have found something that is not there. And then they will sort of spin a conspiracy theory around that. Is that sort of where you're getting at? Yeah. Yeah. And so like, I, you know, Again, you can imagine like plenty of cases where such a person gets things right and then maybe they have like mm-hmm. followers who agree with them and and um and you know, one thing, I mean I haven't had a lot of success with this in interpersonal life talking to conspiracy folks. Um but you know, one move that I often make in in discussions with more conspiratorially minded people is to kind of mm-hmm. um ascend to the second level of discourse and say like well let's think about like your your epistemology um Mm -hmm. and to ask questions like you know this is not our topic here but questions like okay with with any particular domain maybe you've gotten it right and the experts got it wrong what are the chances that you have you know done Mm -hmm. this across multiple domains of expert of expertise you know that kind of thing um right where my hope is that somebody can recognize that that as a general pattern, that seems worrying. Mm-hmm. Um, even if they have a hard time seeing at the first order, like that, you know, my belief about the moon landing or my belief about the Kennedy assassination, you know, whenever they consider the first order thing, they still have their belief. Mm-hmm. Um, but, so, but so moving back to the epistemic company issue, um, that's making a person think mm-hmm. kind of directly about um about their epistemic practices. But you can imagine a second kind Mm -hmm. of person who isn't like a full on conspiracy theorist or something, 
but they started finding themselves having those beliefs. And if they can independently recognize that those people have that fault, mm-hmm. then they could use mm-hmm. their discovery of agreement and thinking like, maybe I'm exhibiting some of these patterns, <laughs> these, these patterns and, the, and mm-hmm. worry about their yeah. practices. Yeah, absolutely. It um it also reminds me not just of conspiracy theories, but like you often see overlap within skeptic community discussions with uh, psychics, for example. And that like um I think the guys over on Guru Pod have made this point as well that like one one trick that conspiracy theorists will do that's identical to a classic cold reading technique is they'll just throw out a bunch of claims and then like the ones that hit they'll claim those as being hits and you'll everyone will sort of just forget about all the other claims that weren't hits um and i think you know i think what you can do is if you can help people to notice those kinds of behaviors in the process right then it becomes easier for them not to slip into also thinking that they've tapped into this intuitive truth because they're noticing their own hits too much and like forgetting their own misses in this way yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, yeah, and so like, what it requires is, all right. What I think it requires is you have to be able to independently recognize the mm-hmm. irrational pattern of reasoning in the un, in the source of agreement that you found, and then be able mm-hmm. to kind of think about like, oh, does my is my agreement some evidence that maybe I also have that pattern, have that pattern of reasoning for the Mm -hmm. person who doesn't even recognize the pattern of reasoning as faulty, then, you know, it still might be a problem in the abstract, but there's not one they can recognize. Um, And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, so that's, that's the kind of case mm -hmm. I was thinking about. Yeah. And I'm really sympathetic to this as a concern and one that like, I feel like I can identify in myself situations where like, I'm in a semi-agreement with someone and it makes me wonder if like I've slipped too far into a particular mode of thinking or of accepting of certain kinds of information without enough scrutiny. So yeah, I think that's really great. So let's let's flip sides then and go to the moral aspect. So those are the two epistemic kinds of problems. Um, and then so the third one is vices. And I love this as a sort of classic Aristotelian. Do you really believe that there are like specific moral vices that like bear on our epistemic capabilities and influence our our belief formation in this way? So I'm not sure that I think that in the exciting way that some philosophers do. Um, so for illustrative purposes, it's worth dividing between, um, synchronic and diachronic rationality. Um, it's not a distinction I wedded to here, but it's going to be useful. So let's just say synchronic rationality in your belief is doing well at a given moment to believe in a portion to like the evidence that you have and the capabilities that you have at that moment. And then diachronic rationality Mm -hmm. is rationality and how you sort of govern your epistemic practices over time. Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, you could have somebody who never looks at counter arguments, you know, and they never, um, engage people who disagree with them and so on and so forth. And then, you know, it could be the case that at the end of that journey, <laughs> they, they're evaluating their evidence well, but it's, it's really bad evidence or something like that. Um, so that's what that distinction mm-hmm. is useful okay. for. There, there's ways of questioning that, that distinction, uh-huh. but one way to illustrate how I think about how virtues and vices bear is to think about in those two cases how how virtues and vices might might bear it. We're just thinking about vices in this case. So something like an unconscious bias, uh, 
mm-hmm. there's a lot of discussion about how an unconscious bias um, or implicit bias, so-called, might affect how one evaluates the evidence sort of right in front of them at a given moment. Um, there's obviously controversies around mm-hmm. studies of implicit mm-hmm. bias, but the idea is that you could have some kind of morally problematic bias that has interfered with your ability to evaluate the evidence that's right in front of you. So that's one kind of way that I think a vice could Mm -hmm. bear. One that I have in mind more myself um, is, at least in this paper, is synchronic. Um, So you might uh, have patterns of attention that are due to vices that you have. So just like we might think about unconscious racial biases, you might have um, some sort of mm-hmm. racial bigotry that makes you especially interested in, you know, um, to stay with stereotypes, you know, nefarious dealings by Jewish campaign donors or, you know, crimes committed by black men or something like mm-hmm. that, where you're like especially interested in those topics. And may, and again, maybe you're very good at inquiry, <laughs> right? Um, but, mm-hmm. but you're pernicious patterns of attention are going to lead you to have a kind of Mm -hmm. suspect body of let's even say knowledge. Okay. You know, just for the sake of argument, um, you know, if you find like, you know, let's, let's do like a kind of cartoonish thing where we could like look at the box of everybody's knowledge, you know, and it's like one person's box is full of like, Mm -hmm. you know, they know a lot about their family. They know some about sports. They know some about, you know, and we're just, we're sticking with their knowledge, you know? Uh, and then, you know, we go to the next person's box and it's like, they don't really know much about sports. They know like absolutely everything about every, you know, major Jewish donor in the world. Uh, (laughs) and they, you know, (laughs) and they lack a bunch of other like normal knowledge, you know, what's that aside of it? It doesn't mean their beliefs are false. There are Jewish donors just as there are donors and, you know, Jewish people are people like everyone else. Um, Mm -hmm. I can say this from experience Mm -hmm. and you know, it's, it's suspect though, because it says something about their patterns of attention. Um, and I don't mm-hmm. think we talk enough about this topic in general. Um, but here's, but, but that's, I think one of the really interesting ways that vice can bear on, um, our agreements and our, uh, our, uh, can bear on the problem of unwelcome agreement is that you might think, you know, if, again, if you mm-hmm. can independently recognize that the source you're agreeing with has this pernicious pattern of attention, and then you find yourself mm-hmm. in agreement with them, maybe you too have have exhibited something like that pattern of attention, or you've sort of casually been extra mm-hmm. interested in you know all these cases of you know some particular category of of event. So that's right. Oh, that's a way morality bears on epistemology I- that. Um, again, it maybe isn't conceptually interesting, um, but is of interest to me with respect to this paper. I mean, I think it's both sort of conceptually interesting in the sense that it does once again, bridge this divide between epistemology and ethics in this kind of way and moral psychology and such, but also the point where you said that you feel like we don't talk about this enough. I mean, we, we could say we still don't talk about it enough, but I do think it's worth noting. I think we actually talk about this a ton online, but not necessarily in these explicit terms. We talk about it in terms of like 
you know, y'all are continuing to be obsessed with racial IQ or something like yeah. that. And like fixations on certain, you know, solutions to certain kinds of problems or certain uh, modes of discussion. And like, like you were saying where, you know, everyone, some, some groups are just like watching for every little screw up by one little, by one community. So they can say, you know, isn't this is further proof that there's a problem with this particular uh, community. And then I think, this gets ratcheted up even more because if if you were to say, well, I just think they are wrong epistemically, then people online are okay with that because then you're having like a marketplace of ideas, mm -hmm. civility discussion, et cetera. But if you say, look, I think that they are consistently obsessed with IQs of different racial populations because they have a vice about wanting to hierarchically rate people based on their value in this way. People get really, really upset because it is this kind of you've jumped from epistemology into discussing people's character and how dare you infer by people's character in this kind of way. I'm curious how you would recommend talking about this in those kinds of spaces so as to minimize sort of blowback effect from any sort of suggestion or just is it like just not worth even making these kinds of suggestions in a discussion <laughs> yeah it's really hard i mean i think there's a mistake that people fall into which is that we're i think we're very inclined to want to challenge the truth of what people are saying when it seems mm -hmm. to us that they're speaking from a bad place as it were um so if somebody's making claims about yeah just i mean honestly, you really people can just pick their topic um you know mm -hmm. uh it's it's always tempting to like defend you know against what they're saying on the merits and i do think it's worth you know trying to reflect on within <laughs> with within oneself whether you really like let's just take the iq thing i guess you you brought it up. Um, the mm -hmm. like, I've done very little research on that question. Um, I don't foresee doing very much research on that on that question, like going into the future. And so, <laughs> nevertheless, though, nevertheless, like, of course, like aesthetically or something, like that research program is like anathema to my like politics. But that's kind of a weird thing, right? Because like. I don't like it's not like I'm going to pontificate on on the science about on that topic or on intelligence research or whatever. Um, and so I do think it's worth resisting. I mean, you could. The bar is very, very <laughs> low here. So I have heard people say. But, you know, the it's tempting for someone for like myself to just like, you know, open a tab and start, you know, uh, quickly Googling, you know, the, the, the responses to, to something somebody says, and then to just parrot those responses. And, you know, that's the kind of, I don't think that mm -hmm. kind of debate is particularly um, valuable. I do think it's probably good to be forthright with people and to say something like, you know, I don't find this <laughs> research program valuable or important or, um, I'm not going to engage with you on the subject matter here, but for what it's worth, uh, I find, you know, your pattern of attention objectionable or something like that. Now, the chances that somebody will receive that well is very low. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't I don't think mm -hmm. almost anyone receives that kind of thing well in any direction. Um, but I do think that we have a ton of like distraction debate that 
is like because we've we're acting like we have some kind of like truth disagreement with somebody when really um we find you know their whole thing mm-hmm. objectionable <laughs> as it were so mm-hmm. yeah not not really good advice yeah but... and it seems like well i mean i think i think it's valuable to identify the problem even if all of our cognitive systems make it very hard for us to use that information actively in certain situations it seems like there's a similar concern for the other moral issue that you raise the implication one where like so so this is the concern of your belief is going to have some harmful consequences right in some kind of way there's some implications down the line which is the anathema of the high decoupling crowd who wants to say you know when we're discussing ideas we should discuss them wholly separate of whatever like social or political implications they might have when implemented out there in the real world um what do you think about that kind of approach to epistemology do you feel like that's that's a doable approach or that it's fundamentally flawed or yeah. Yeah. So again, here, I think it's useful to keep this synchronic diachronic distinction in mind. So mm-hmm. some concerns bear on your beliefs at the, at a given moment, other concerns though can bear on how you govern yourself over time. You know, what, what you pay attention to, what questions you pursue and that kind of thing. And a lot of times I think these, these implications and so on um, can affect what we ought to devote our time to or what we ought not to devote our time to and that kind of thing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it could be the case. I mean, I think there is something in our like psyche that's like resistant to this, (laughs) but like, it could be the case that there are truths out there where it's just better if we don't spend time looking for them, not because like, I'm not trying to like, not because there's something like spooky about them or, (laughs) or whatever, you know, but just because like Lovecraft style. No. Yeah. Yeah. Like, just given our world and given our limited time and resources and so on and so forth, there's just all kinds of reasons why there are questions not worth pursuing. Like, are there an odd or even number of stars mm-hmm. in the universe, for example? Should we expend lots of resources on that? I think almost everyone agrees no. And that's a very mundane example, though. That that mm-hmm. example is not politically loaded or morally loaded. Everyone just recognizes that that's kind mm-hmm. of a waste of time. And so sometimes with these debates, I think the real question is, is this a good use of time? Now, it's worth now sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. people do have arguments for why it is a good use of time, you know, depending. So like with things like the IQ stuff or things like gender differences and that kind of thing, yeah. you know, there are arguments that people have offered. They've said like, you know, if we want to have better Mm -hmm. um, institutions that are like more responsive to people's likely needs and that kind of thing, it's good to know, it's good to know these, these differences or whatever. Now, you know, that argue, that kind of argument I think is worth addressing because that gets at what, again, what, what I think is the real heart of the matter, which is that like some people think these questions are not worth pursuing and some people do. Um, Now, I think that brings up a really interesting point there. Those, those kind those kind of counter arguments are in effect low decoupling counter arguments there's like you take someone like charles murray and you say to charles murray you know why are you spending all this time studying iq and he's going to say well because it allows us to understand what amount of inequality is ethical like what amount <laughs> yeah. of this is just the, like 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 literally like what amount of this is just the result of differences that like we as a society should or shouldn't 
in turn devote a bunch of resources to trying to change right so but then you've you've gotten them away from this idea of oh well we're just discussing iq in, in the pure abstract and back into the real world where we're talking about it because it has these practical implications so i think i think there's something very valuable to this this push to just say you know, why do we need to ask and learn about this particular thing and get people to admit that there is a political, there's a political project behind all of this research, not just some of it. Yeah, that's, that's perfect. That's, mm -hmm. yeah. And I think, and I think, you know, for what it's worth, I think, again, people should be willing to have that latter debate even if they're not willing to have, I mean, I don't mean like literally everyone should be willing to have the same debates, but, but, mm -hmm. but in general resistance to having the first order debate is perfectly reasonable on the grounds we've been discussing. Um, but then mm -hmm. that's, that is consistent with being willing to have the debate about whether it's a good use of time and that kind of thing. Um, because again, I think that's really mm -hmm. where, where it's at. It's not because like, half of us have like done you know we've all done a lot of research into the question and half of us came away thinking it's the research is bad and half came mm -hmm. away thinking it's good you know there are experts who think those things but but yeah so one thing about the implication thing that's a little bit different uh that i did want to put on the table mm -hmm. is that um so one thought here was that you might find that um, an unseemly source agrees with your belief where you think, oh, they must see something about this claim that I don't, mm -hmm. that serves their agenda, which again, I independently don't like. So if mm -hmm. like, uh, mm -hmm. like I think a good example of this is um, uh, um, certain kind of arguments and claims people have made about like immigration and jobs in the United States. So um one kind mm -hmm. of line that you hear that's a little ambiguous politically is this line that, oh, um, corporations love immigration uh, because, you know, it provides them mm -hmm. with cheap labor, that kind of thing. Um, and that's, you know, that's like not obviously a right wing argument. Uh, you know, it's sort of anti-corporate. It's it's like kind of quote unquote populist. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of um, mm -hmm. sort of. Uh, nonsense that goes under the populist label these days but but that's a kind of um claim mm -hmm. that's you know i could easily picture somebody just be, just thinking i mean i myself i think when i first heard that argument i thought oh that makes sense you know that just sort of seemed it just was you know i don't remember like the very first time i heard someone make that make that claim um but then you know if you see you know to use the example of the day if you see like tucker carlson endorsing that claim well, mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that it's not true that corporations, you know, love cheap labor or whatever. Uh, but it does mean that maybe this idea has downstream uses within pernicious ideologies mm -hmm. or within pernicious programs um, that is going to make me want to, one, double check on the claim itself. Uh, and but two, just to kind of rethink my whole approach to the subject matter. Um, so that's that's what I had in mind with hmm. with implication. Yeah, what would that second part do you feel sort of look like in practice? Does it does it mean that when you talk about those issues in immigration, you want to like 
explicitly figure out some way to correct for the the capacity for those ideas to slide towards that negative like implication like you need to more thoroughly pre-butt that implication now that you've realized that it's there yeah so i think i think a lot of the effect is on that kind of thing which which makes it sort of different from the other problems because the other problems were mm. sort of worrying about the belief itself or how you got there and this is kind mm-hmm. of you know if i if i were rewriting the paper or write further on it um i might kind of separate this more um thoroughly because i think yeah it it affects Mm -hmm. the kind of thing you're talking about which is like um how i myself am going to situate this claim you know in my broader politics or maybe i'll stop bringing it up in isolation you know and i'll i'll add a disclaimer or Mm -hmm. something you know Mm -hmm. that's the kind of thing people do you know when you know that some claim or some line is going to be heard in a certain way that's either misleading or that you regard as bad, you know, it's perfectly normal and reasonable to adjust how you, how you present it, you know? And so that is certainly one of the mm-hmm. responses that you might have to facing the problem. of Yeah. Yeah. I, I just wanted to sort of make it explicit because I think a lot of people, when they hear this implication concern might quickly jump to the assumption that what you're suggesting is, we should not study X or we should not talk about X because that study or that discussion is likely to lead to these kinds of implications where it could instead be something like we can have those discussions in the right ways, in the right contexts, you know, with the right disclaimers so that individuals do not come away with those um, harmful implications. Yeah, that's right. Um, mm-hmm. And I should say, I wonder, you know, if any people listen to this, what they'll sort of think. I mean, I am kind, I am actually sort of like an absolutist when it comes to like academic freedom stuff. Um, Mm. uh, And so like Mm -hmm. nothing I'm saying, like, I want to be clear, like, you know, I'm speaking morally, you know, so like. It's too, it's too late. You've already lost them. (laughs) Right. We're 50 minutes. You should have put this disclaimer a lot sooner because now you've, you already, they've assumed the implications. You've saw, you've fallen into your own trap, my friend. That is that is true, yeah. Because um, right, because uh, no, la- language about what people ought not be pursuing and that kind of thing is is the very first thing people are going to think of is like uh, censorship and you mm-hmm. know people getting fired and stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is itself a kind of problem. I think I think we're like uncomfortable with like just moral language when it's like very and very strong moral language, mm-hmm. you know. It, um, uh, which I think you know I don't know if it's a distinctly. I don't know, probably just a human thing. Um, but you know, mm-hmm. how, how can you, how can you tell me how to live or how to think or whatever? Um, but yeah, that's, you know, nothing, uh, in this paper has anything to do with, uh, legal, uh, <laughs> prohibitions or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So are there any, uh, since you've written it, any other specific, like in concrete examples you can think of in your own life where, you had a moment of unwelcome epistemic agreement that actually sort of made you uh, recheck a, a belief or something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, this kind of thing does happen. Um, I mean, one. Um, so one example that I take seriously uh, with respect to my own politics um, is, and this has to do with patterns of attention. So. Um, mm-hmm. I have a very like left wing view on the Israel Palestine conflict, for example. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, well, so here, so we'll finally talk about an uncontroversial example. 
Um, but <laughs> the <laughs> I have a very left wing view on that. Now, one of the critiques that is often dismissed are is like, well, people on the left, uh, you know, focus in a disproportionate manner on that conflict mm-hmm. as opposed to other mm-hmm. conflicts. That's a familiar, if you've spent three seconds uh, <laughs> involved in, in this debate, whether in your personal life or, or on the internet or, or books, you've heard, you've, you've seen this, this kind of line. Um, mm-hmm. And then related to that is people finding this or that, um, you know, outright anti-Semitic figure allied with um you know, Palestinian solidarity or something like that, like Louis Farrakhan comes to mind. Um, so that's a case where I, um, although as a Jewish person, I'm not especially like, I don't feel especially like threatened, like maybe I'm an anti-Semite. Um, however, in terms of like questions of political mm. solidarity and the like, mm-hmm. I do, I have sort of taken that seriously. Um, and introspected and um tried and and even had it in mind like when i even just in practices of reading about like human rights issues and stuff like that um Mm -hmm. um you know to not contribute to or to be unduly obsessed with or something um that particular conflict though it's probably one of my it's probably my primary international interest um so that's an example where it's like, you know, after a while I, I thought, well, you know, probably there are people of that kind, you know, that, uh, that criticism probably does apply to some people and, and, um, it's worth thinking about, you know, and, uh, and it's kind of related to like platform sharing issues and stuff that are interesting in their own right. Um, Mm -hmm. that I think we should be concerned about. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. That's one example. (laughs) No further questions. No, it's a good example. No, it's a good example. It makes a lot of sense. And I will ask you no follow up questions. Um, But like, let me also ask, I I know the sort of the point of this is that it's more of like a bit of like a nudge towards further skepticism rather than like, oh, you just abandoned the view outright. Are there any like people in the world where if you found out they agreed with you on like some core belief of yours, you would just like you would yeet it straight into the sun because you were so disgusted by the epistemic <laughs> agreement in that context? Um, yeah, so like. Uh, I think if like Charlie Kirk or uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Dave Rubin or somebody in that circle, you know, if I found myself like, you know, if, if I watched a video where they proclaimed, you know, a series of things that I also proclaim, I'd be pretty upset. Uh-huh. Um, if they if they shared your moral realism, your non-natural moral realism, you would. Well, that's a problem for my moral realism is they probably do. But uh, they probably yeah. do. I know it's really unfortunate. <laughs> it's it's a big issue. I'm going to have to go and have a long think about that after this conversation. Yeah, actually. Uh, um do you have any other sort of recommendations for folks to like applying this out in the world of situations where you feel like you've held you've you found it valuable and like maybe other people could could cue uh to could connect it into what they are dealing with um well one thing i would say is is to take the accusations seriously when they come so like especially on Mm -hmm. social media you know like um, people will like as as if it's just an instant uh, own, you know. They'll show that so and so liked your tweet, or 
so-and-so shared mm-hmm. your post or whatever. And that in and of itself is a kind of condemnation. That's very tempting mm-hmm. and easy to dismiss. I think that it's good for persuasion and for getting along with others to, to uh, express, if you can find it within yourself, to ex- to acknowledge something legitimate in their concern there. You know, and so like... Mm-hmm. Um, there's some, I was actually trying to find it today. I couldn't remember the, the paper, the, the, the research that, um, uh, I saw a talk on once, but mm-hmm. there, there's social psychological research on like different methods of persuasion. Like, you know, there's different terms for them. Like I think right. data dump is one or info dump, you know, where you just like give so much of facts. There's like consistency reasoning where you try to like catch them in a contradiction with something else they've thought and that kind of thing. And there's, and there's one method, I couldn't remember the name of it. Uh, but it's where you like try to find values of theirs. It's a familiar thing, but where you try to find values of theirs that you also share and then just reason from those and mm-hmm. to like concede as much as you can to them, you know? So like if they're, if you're a, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Democrat and they're Republican, you know, figure out something in like, <laughs> like the Republican platform or worldview that you can like agree to or see something reasonable in and make a point out of like, uh, mentioning it, you know, which can seem kind of silly or can mm-hmm, sometimes mm-hmm. feel like a knock on your pride or something. But uh, that in general, I think, is a well-motivated way of being with others epistemically. And so it applies here as well. So if somebody s- says like, you know, that's the talking point of so-and-so uh, who's some bad person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Don't just say, well, who cares? Or, you know, are you calling me an anti-Semite or something like that? You know, say, oh, well, you know what? I actually agree with you about that person. Um, <laughs> spend some time on that. And mm-hmm. then and then mm-hmm. try to explain why your reasons are different or whatever. You know, I think that kind of thing can go a long way just in, in general. But also it applies here, I think. Yeah, I think... You know, if nothing else, if Donald Trump or even worse, Donald Trump Jr. were to retweet you, that should give you pause at least, right? Like there should be some some lengthy moment of introspection before anything else were to happen, right? Right, right, right. And yeah, and that connects to like a topic that is, I think, a topic in its own right. And it's sort of where I imagine going with this paper after or this project after the pandemic which mm-hmm. is a period of time in which I'm not able to write papers. Uh, the, <laughs> which is questions of like epistemic solidarity. Like, so mm-hmm. totally, totally setting aside questions of truth and justification. Mm-hmm. You know, if Donald Trump Jr. retweets your, <laughs> your thing, at the very least, that means that this claim uttered by you is being used in this particular way. And that is something that I think mm-hmm. we should care about. You know, if somebody uses my arm, to like mm-hmm. they put a knife in my hand and they use my arm to attack somebody. I care about that. Obviously just because <laughs> I care about somebody not getting hurt. But I also don't want my arm to be used in that mm-hmm. way. And we we don't think about our like mm-hmm. statements and beliefs like that as often, I think. You know, uh but I think that we should or that we should mm-hmm. at least to some extent. I'm not saying there's no differences, but it's something I've been thinking about. Like we should care about you know, um all of ourselves, uh, you know, and, and how we're used and to what right. purposes are, are we're put in that kind of thing. And so, yeah. <laughs> so I hope that's, mm-hmm. you know, 
a little no, more I think that's a good point. further interest. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. So maybe we'll have to get you back on at some point to talk about how that that side of things uh, has played out. Because I, I think I'm sim very sympathetic. Um, but of course, since I am very sympathetic, I, ha I now have to become a little bit more skeptical. And that's right. Um, I want to want to want to see your work, of course, right. But um, this has been really interesting, Josh. I really appreciate it. Um, I now unfortunately have to torture you. Um, so this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. For folks who are not familiar, I am going to give you a list of things. You are going to tell me, are those things real or not real? Those are your only choices. You do not get to hedge, right? Real or not real. Do we understand? So I don't get to say things like sort of or roughly speaking. Nope. Or... Nope. Those, oh, those words are banned. Pretty real sure I've heard people hedging. Real. Pretty sure I've heard people hedging on this podcast. Look, there are some attempts at hedging that happen. I do my best to curtail the hedging. It's not a, I don't. They won't let me use electric shock, so I do the best I can with verbal commands. Okay, um, it's cruel. It's a little pushback early on in the, uh, yeah. in, the in the challenge. Well, All right, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. That's good. Uh, we'll 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 beat that um, hubris right out of you. So <laughs> let's find out first. Is anything real? Yes. Okay. Let's find out what's real. The external world, real or not real? Real. Colors, real or not real? Real. Phenomenal consciousness? Real. Free will? Real, I hope so. <laughs> uh, selves or persons? Real. Um, genders? It's an example where I would go assortive, so I have to say real. Not, yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, I'll Races? Stop. Real. <laughs> Species? Real. It's okay. Your resistance makes me more amused. That's the, the fun part of it. Uh, morality. Real. Rights. You mean like, are the shadows cast by obligations real? <laughs> I just said the word rights. Answer the question. Mm, not real. Okay. Knowledge. Real. God or gods. Real. Capital R. Oh, society. Uh, no, not real. <laughs> Money. Real. Numbers. Real. Fictional characters. Not real. Holes, like a hole in the ground. Real. Chairs. Real. Sandwiches. Real. Science. Real. Natural laws. Not a hedge. Can you clarify? Do you mean like laws of nature or like natural laws in like the moral law type sense? Uh, laws of nature. Real. Okay. Beauty. Real. Love. Real. Causality. Real. And finally, time. Real. All right. You survived. How do you feel? I feel like a realist. I think I said real <laughs> to a lot almost, of reals on that list. <laughs> Did I say real to everything except for like society? I think, or I think society, almost, rights. Uh, society and rights. I said no. Was it free will? Were you or, or something? Or, or I said I hope or, so. No, no, it was a, a species somewhere around there. Yeah, no, that was uh, it was very heavy on the realist. So, so good yeah. luck with you out there on philosophy Twitter. Um, that's always fun. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it's you know, it's it's a real uh, atrocity. This enlightening round, you know, it's 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 cruel. It's it's a vicious, unjust, like it's. Uh, yeah it's yeah. philosophically cruel you know like yeah. i 
I st- I went to Brandeis. I did my master's at Brandeis with where Eli Hirsch is, who wrote mm-hmm. uh, Quantifier Variance and Realism. You mm-hmm. know where there's the word existence is a word like any other, and you know it can have different meanings, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. different languages. And uh, this is just mm-hmm. you just you're bulldozing over that. Yep. Yep. Well, look, here, here's the reality. I think a lot of people think there's just one real, and I think this is a very useful mechanism for undercutting that assumption. So I appreciate you participating in my abject lessons in philosophical cruelty. So thanks, Josh, for coming on the show. This has been a lot of fun. Do you want to let folks know where they can find your work? Um, I guess, uh, well, my like, philosophy website is joshuablanchard.net um which has a list of my papers uh i don't have any other fancy projects or anything um so you know twitter there's of course twitter i do have a twitter account at philoshua so Mm -hmm. uh you could you could go there if you'd like but uh i'm not sure you can call that my work i think twitter is where all the real philosophy work is happening these days (laughs) let's be honest yeah I mean, it's Twitter is the thing that I do when I'm like walking around the house, you know, like cleaning or something. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, devoting one percent of my brain to to Twitter. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's sad, but yes, I am on there. <laughs> That's fair. All right, great. Well, thanks so much, Joshua. It's been a lot of fun. All right, thank you. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you, but as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our newest patrons, Sam Nolan and James Lohner. And thanks, as always, to our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Dude, Fix the Vote, Jude Law's Canadian Accent and Existence Makes My Pussy Throb, once COVID is blown over, he then the vegan needs to get a drink with edgy veggie and talk some philosophy. Vegan the heathen too. Uh, Chad T, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And all the thanks to our top tier Archduke level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Void Eyes and Dave Maslich. Thank you all so much. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, despite the year that will not end, remember, you are the void and the void is you. (laughs) 